And I'm going to invite you, this, just so you know, if you want to sit on these two locations of Scripture, we're going to do a kind of a smattering of Scripture this morning. We've been in Genesis 3. We're going to use that as the framework for building to where we're going to go. We're going to end up in Acts chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 6, but it'll just be a little bit before I get there. So if you want to find those places, you're welcome to hold on to it. I, uh, <clears throat> I learned this morning that apparently if uh, you hand Ryan anything, he, he can just beat on it and make a noise. I love it. That's good. I like that. <laughs> um, while we're sharing this morning, this series that we're going on together is this idea of, of believe. We're looking at the first three chapters of Genesis and the foundation of really all of Christianity found within the first three chapters of, of the book of, uh, of Genesis, the, the pillars of what makes our, our faith uh, what it is. And so we're seeing how that theme carries throughout Scripture. And today I want to talk about something significant as it relates to uh, the kingdom of God. And this, this morning, uh, I say this on the back end thinking, uh, we are, we're heading to middle school camp after the services are finished this morning. And I uh, have done this for the last five years, been in charge of middle school camp. This year, we have over 50 middle school campers. So if you just, if you see me uh, as we're going through the series, just sort of uh, today, especially just kind of stare off into nothingness, losing my train of thought. I just realized I'm going camping with 50 middle schoolers at the end of today. So uh, I'm just kidding. We enjoy it. I love it and uh, look forward to it today. But uh, when it talk, we talk about the way uh, Christianity has established itself, it finds its pillars in, in the first three chapters uh, of Genesis. We've looked at those foundations together, the identity of God, who we are in relationship to God, uh, the idea of sin, what really makes sin, sin, and then this thought of, of redemption, where we get the, the words of, of Jesus even being a savior, what it means that Jesus is a, a savior, what he's rescuing us from. And we looked at the fulfillment of Christ being our priest. He fulfills all of the sacrificial systems of the Old Testament, even, even the establishment of the temple, everything built within that, that old sacrificial system of, of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, we see Jesus fulfilling it within himself, which is what inaugurated the New, new Covenant. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, we looked at that together. It is the reason we refer to the Bible as the Old Covenant and New Covenant or Old Testament and, and New Testament. It's the promise for which Christ would come, give us his redemption in, in him. And so we find our freedom or salvation in what Jesus has accomplished for us on the cross. Even the sacrifices of animals in the Old Testament were all images of what Jesus would ultimately fulfill for us. This morning, I'm going to look at the same text that we referenced in light of this, this priestly idea of Jesus fulfilling for us in the, the Old Covenant and, and the sacrifices. And now I want to talk about, rather than just the priestly sacrifices, the idea of redemption in Jesus, I want to talk about what God restores for us in his kingdom. In the book of Genesis, when, when Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1 happens, it tells us that the serpent begins a conversation with Eve. We looked at the significance of what that term serpent actually means in Scripture, talked about why the idea of a snake it could be metaphorical within the Bible because the Hebrew word for serpent can also be translated as enchanter or it could also be translated as shining or brass. Uh, Satan gave this appearance of deception as a serpent. He gave this appearance of enchantment as giving a, a, a lie that looked like in the form of a truth, and it deceived Adam and Eve, and he looked appealing. He was the most beautiful of, of all of God's creation that Scripture tells us he made. He tried to, in Isaiah chapter 14, we looked at that together. He tried to put himself into the position of God, beginning in verse 12, and, and God cast him out. 
And then he comes to the Garden of Eden and shares the same lie with Adam and Eve that caused him in his own casting out of heaven, which was, you can become like God. Adam and Eve bought into the lie that you could become like God, knowing good from evil. And that phrase in the Hebrew means more than just knowing right from wrong. It means that you will declare to God what is right, what is wrong. You will take the position of God, declaring to the world that you are the authority by governing what is right and wrong, rather than allowing God the position of ultimate authority as he is creator. When that took place, the Bible introduces to the idea of, of two kingdoms. When it, we talk about Satan and the reference to scripture, there are many ways that it views him in light of what he represents in the Garden of Eden. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, it says this, in whose case the God of this world, talking about Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Satan, Satan in his dominion or being referred to as God of the world, um, this word for theos, it's, it's a generic word for gods, which the uh, Greek culture would have been familiar with multiple gods. They refer to Satan this way, having a, a position of authority. They're recognizing his authority. And he's saying his whole purpose is to blind us from the salvation that is in Christ, the good news that is in, in Jesus, the, the representation of what he desires to bring. In fact, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 26 says this, and if Satan cast out Satan, Jesus, I, I should preface this and say, Jesus is being accused as working for Satan's kingdom. And, and Jesus acknowledging the idea of kingdom says this, if Satan cast out Satan, uh, he's casting out demons here. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? And so Jesus is referencing the dominion of, of Satan, saying that he can't possibly work for Satan because he's living his life contrary to what Satan is about. And, and he's referencing this back to kingdoms. I want to see the idea of kingdoms represented here. Throughout scripture, it's referred to, sorry, it's referred to in three different ways. Satan is often in his dominion. He, there's more than this, but three prominent ways I just want to point out. He's the prince of the world. He's referred to as the prince of the power of the air and the God of this world in scripture. So you see this idea of dominion and authority. When it comes to Jesus, though, in Genesis chapter 3, after Satan comes in, deceives Eve, sin falls the, uh, in, into the world, we, we've seen this together, we've looked at this over the last couple of weeks, God pursues man, promises then redemption, and that happens in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. God's declaration to Adam and Eve after sin, in the middle of their curse, in the moment of their curse, they're hiding from God in fig leaves. God pursues them. God takes off fig leaves. God clothes them in priestly garments, and God promises what will be the first sacrifice. And he says in Genesis 3 in chapter 15, I will put enmity between you, talking about the serpent and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And this is where the idea of, of kingdom mentality comes from. In the next phrase, it says this, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This idea of he, or head in Scripture refers to authority and power. We looked at satanic, the idea of satanic kingdom or Satan's kingdom. And what it's saying about Jesus is that his rule and authority will crush that of the serpent. Head representing his authority. This is, this is important to start uh, recognizing within Scripture because... God is going to begin to point to the nation of Israel as the identity through which he would bring his fulfillment for, for Christ, the Messiah, to come. He will use Israel as an image or, uh, or as, a, as a smaller case scenario of what he desires to accomplish for all of us. 
When we talk about the kingdom of God, I, I especially think it's important because sometimes we get lost in the idea of his kingdom, specifically as it relates to Israel. People get obsessive about Israel related to the kingdom, but I want us to see in Genesis chapter 3, the idea of kingdom begins before Israel is even brought into existence. God no doubt works through Israel. God no doubt brings a king into Israel. He, he, he specifically uh, relates Jesus to that of the Davidic throne. But the idea of kingship begins before the nation of Israel even starts in, the, in Genesis chapter 3 when Jesus is promised as he will come and crush the head of the serpent. Satan's kingdom, Christ's kingdom. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9 gives, a, a, I think, a beautiful picture of the culmination of, of the idea of, of God's kingdom when it talks about every tribe, tongue, language, and nation before the throne of the Lamb, singing praise to him, saying, worthy are you. God's desire is to establish and reestablish his rule over those who are now alienated, those who are rebellious against his kingdom, which scripture points out, we'll see in a moment, is us. Isaiah gets more specific in this prophecy, which we looked at last week, and I want us to highlight it now, rather than just thinking of redemption, to think about his kingship. Isaiah 7.14 says this, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will, will, will be with child, Bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then it gets specific about his kingship. It says in Isaiah 9, 6, For a child will be born unto us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, the Prince of Peace. You see, in Jesus' ruling, he's reestablishing the peace that was lost in the kingdom that went corrupt and its pursuit of Satan's lie. In fact, Romans chapter 5 kind of places those positions of where we are as human beings in relationship to God because of this sin. This is just a highlighting of some of the verses within Romans 5. It says this in verse 6, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans has already established for us who is the ungodly. It's all of us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. And so in this kingdom that's contrary to God, God will bring his wrath and justice against it. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so what he's saying in verse 10 is that we're not in this ambiguous position knowing that there's two kingdoms and we kind of just stand in the middle teeter-tottering between the two. What it's actually saying in verse 10 is that because of sin and because God is holy, we belong to the kingdom that's contrary to, to Christ. And so he's in verse 12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, talking about Adam, and death through sin... So the way that we know that we belong to the kingdom of destruction is death. We all experience death. And so death spread to all men because all sin. So then, as though one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through the one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Colossians, I think, lays it a little more clearly for us in, in talking about just two distinct kingdoms it definitely shows us in Romans 5 that uh, there are uh, those that belong to destruction of the wrath, under God's wrath. 
And God desires to bring us his grace in him. But Colossians lays it out this way in talking about kingdoms. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God. This idea of kingdom, especially in the New Testament, is referenced nearly a hundred times. One of the things that I enjoy about considering the thought of God's kingdom as we just look at scriptures, it relates to us this morning. It's that God's rule and God's authority and God's kingdom is really what gives us perspective. Eternity has a way of teaching us what is really important, what matters. Thinking about your life belonging beyond this world, but rather to Christ. Knowing one day you will see your king face to face. The accountability, the relationship, what it means to live life in light of what Christ has done for us. Considering this kingdom gives us the opportunity to put life into perspective as to really what matters and what's worth living for. Last week, I just introduced us to this thought of Deuteronomy chapter 7, where it answered this question, um, God, why did you choose Israel? Was it because they were special? Was it because they loved you more than anyone else? What what was it about Israel? And and God gives the answer in Deuteronomy 7 and verse 7. He said this, The Lord did not send his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Because the Lord loved you, And kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Israel, God in choosing Israel, he picks the least of all people. In fact, he he chose people that were in slavery. Israel for us is a representation of all of the human race as it relates to what Romans 5 just said to us. In a position where we can't redeem ourselves, in a position where we can't save ourselves, one who has now come to to rescue us from the kingdom of darkness, it said in Colossians 1, and bring us into the kingdom of light. In in fact, in John 10.10, Jesus said, the reason I came, I came, he says this, the thief comes to still kill and destroy the kingdom of darkness. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus in, in John chapter 3 and verse 3, you, you're probably familiar with the uh, passage of scripture from John 3.16. He's sharing with Nicodemus this idea of salvation, rescuing Jesus. But this is the way he begins his answer to Nicodemus. And Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. God in creating us for, for his kingdom, promises redemption in his kingdom, and that redemption is given ultimately through, uh, to us through Christ. Which is why he goes into verse 16 and says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And he goes on from there and says, But whoever does not believe is condemned already. 
And so what Jesus is declaring in this passage is that though there is the kingdom of darkness representing the idea of Satan, Jesus provides opportunity of rescue in him. The idea of being made new. And born again. There's a thought theologians say that through Christ the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, Jesus' pronouncement after, after his temptation in the wilderness, he comes out declaring the kingdom of God is at hand. In John 18 and verse 36, in referencing his kingdom, though Jesus, Jesus declares to us that the beginning of his kingdom, the inauguration of his kingdom, happens not physically, but it began within us spiritually. Now listen to this. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now is my kingdom not from here. This is why Paul said in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, for I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Jesus is making all things new. And his kingdom as it's inaugurated on this earth begins within us. We, we looked at this last week as it related to us being priests in Christ. We become the temple of God because of what Jesus has done. Jesus dwells within us. In fact, in Colossians 1.27 it says, God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. The kingdom inaugurated in Jesus. Promised from Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. But the Bible also continues to promise us that the kingdom has not been completely consummated. Jesus, in, in Luke 19.11, he, he says to the people they thought that the kingdom of God would appear immediately. But he taught us to pray this way in Luke chapter 11 and verse 2. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. And in Luke 22, when he's partaking of communion, he says this to the disciples. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. He'll drink it new with us. In fact, as we saw together, Romans 5 shows this thought of darkness belonging to the kingdom of corruption, which is Satan's representation of God of this world. God in Romans chapter 5, giving us his grace and mercy in Christ. It goes on and says in Romans 8, recognizing that God began his work in us spiritually, that he will ultimately fulfill his work physically in this world when he makes everything new. It tells us in the rep representation of sin that's come all over the world since Genesis chapter 3 because of the fall of Adam and Eve. It says this in Romans 8, verse 21, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption to the freedom and the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit now. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, 
waiting eager, eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. The work that God has begun will become, become consummated. And this is the passage that continues on. It goes on and, and says later for us that God works all things together for good to those that love Christ who are called according to his purpose. It's saying in this world when we look at suffering, when we look at the physical curse of things that rest upon us, that to those who love God or are called according to this purpose, none of it, none of it will be in vain. That the authority of Christ is so big that he will declare his authority above all of it. There are two things I've often heard. Those who criticize Christianity, they'll, they'll say this if, if from an atheistic worldview. They'll often say, there, God is one of two things, but he can't be both. He's either good or not all-powerful, or he's all-powerful and he is not good. And the reasoning for saying that is this. If God is good, he cannot be all-powerful because a good God wouldn't allow suffering to exist. Or they'll say this, God is all-powerful, but he cannot be good because if he was, was all-powerful and good, he would not allow suffering to exist. He cannot be both. But, but what the idea fails to see is that God is so great that even beyond the suffering of this world, he can, in his authority, culminate all of it under his headship and no, no suffering will be in vain. Of course, we say this often at church, but the ultimate example of that is the cross of Christ. Their most horrendous event in all of history, God uses it for redemption, becomes the song of the church. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, before the throne of the Lamb, everyone declaring from tribes, tongues, language, nations, worthy are you, O Lamb. Nothing in vain. God's authority declared in all of it. And those that are the first fruits of the Spirit wait eagerly for the redemption of their body. That's why Jesus says in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 5 He who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I love as you just think Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, in comparison to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. Jesus establishes everything intentionally, purposefully, beautifully in him. Creation becomes corrupted in sin. Mankind experiences death both physically and spiritually from God, which means we are separated from him. And God pursues mankind for a relationship to the point that he becomes flesh. Emmanuel, God with us, dies on the cross for our sins. It becomes our redemption song. God takes the most horrific event in all of human history, makes it our anthem of declaration and victory of what Christ has done both spiritually and physically in this world. And at the very end of Scripture in Revelation 29, as if everything meets its culmination, Jesus saying to us, Behold, I am making all things new. It's a beautiful picture. You know, sometimes when we think about what God desires to accomplish, salvation in Jesus, our minds tend to think future, right? I can't wait till I get to heaven one day. What's important to recognize that though we have a glorious hope in front of us, there isn't a reason to fear because of the hope that awaits us in Christ Jesus, the, the future that is before us, it does not mean that God's activity has not ceased from, from what we are experiencing in him right now. 
When we get so fixated in what God says about salvation in the future, we forget that a salvation exists in these moments. And so what does it mean, that the kingdom, what, what does that mean for us today as people as it relates to Christ? And Jesus, when he shared his parables throughout Scripture, I think Matthew 13 is one of the most famous sections of, of his parables, Jesus relates the idea of, of his kingdom continually throughout the parables. And he calls it a, a mustard seed at one point, that it just spreads, and, and the, the, the sowing of seed, it just spreads throughout this world. The, the salvation which Christ brings for us and the redemption in Jesus, it's, it's still moving in the lives of people around us. What does the kingdom mean for us today? You know, in answering that question, I really feel like I could turn to any chapter of the Bible and just say, okay, let me explain this. But just for, for fun and for enjoyment in Scripture, I really want to highlight two passages of Scripture that, that um, are often misinterpreted, and I want us to see how Scripture communicates it for us today. Acts chapter 7, one of the passages I told you to look at this, this morning. Acts chapter 7 is just a reminder of the uh, a position, or I shouldn't say just a reminder, it is a reminder of the position of Christ as it relates to his kingdom in this current world that we are existing in. And what it's saying to us right now is Jesus is the problem to our problems. Acts chapter 7, this is the first stoning of Christians. This is where persecution began and persecution has continued even to this day. The first person uh, persecuted and, and martyred is Stephen. He declares this message in Acts chapter 7. The Jews become angry. Steve, uh, Paul is a part of this group. They get angry at Stephen. They pick up stones to stone him and, and rob him of his life. At the end of Acts chapter 7, it gives this declaration of what Stephen sees as he is about to be stoned to death. And it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. I don't... I don't know what that looks like. It's like a zombie apocalypse here. They're gnashing their teeth at him, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And, they witness, uh, and the witnesses laid aside the robes at the feet of a young man named Saul, who is Paul. And they went out stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. A couple of reasons uh, I want to just highlight on this passage. One is because next week we're going to talk about the Trinity. And this passage is often used as a gross misrepresentation of what the Trinity is. Um, if for any reason, I just want to talk about the Trinity to get rid of heresy. Um, people often think about the Trinity. When, I, when people ask me about the Trinity, they start with this false assumption of what they think the Trinity is, which is modalism. If you want to look that up, you can. I'll explain it next week. But, and, and they come to passages like this, they can't understand it because they assume Christians believe in modalism, and we don't. Um, and this passage is often used in that way. The other reason I want to highlight this passage is because it relates to the kingdom. It's recognizing for us where Jesus is right now. So you think about Acts as the book of Acts unfolds. Luke writes the gospel of Luke, then Luke writes the book of Acts. The book of Acts carries the move of the Holy Spirit and the people of God to accomplish his will in this world. It's the expansion of, of, of the church. 
It's how God goes from Jerusalem and his people to Judea to the uttermost parts of the world. It is, it's Paul's missionary journeys explained as it expands beyond the borders of Israel. In Acts chapter 7, the church experiences conflict. Right? When you experience adversity in life, One of the most comforting things to those who put things into perspective as it relates to God's kingdom is to simply ask yourself, where is Jesus right now? Does he care? Is God concerned over me? Stephen, as he is about to be stoned, gives us the picture of, uh, of heaven in these moments. Remember, Jesus was crucified. Jesus was resurrected. Acts chapter 1, he ascends into heaven. Now Acts chapter 7 is reminding us of where he is. He is before the throne in heaven, standing at the right hand of the Father. When it talks about standing at the right hand of the Father, one of the things I just want to highlight as it relates to just heretical thought in this passage, I want us to recognize in these verses it never says that Stephen sees the physical body of the Father. In fact, Christianity does not teach God the Father has a physical body. That is heretical to Christianity. But in verse 55, what it does say is that Stephen sees the glory of God. Remember Moses, when he saw the burning bush, he sees this bush radiating God's glory from this and God uh, speaking to him through the radiation of this bush, this, this glory of, glorious fire. Nowhere in Scripture does it say God has a physical body. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, it says no man has seen God at any time. But but Scripture tells us that Jesus Christ, he has explained him. That's why Jesus said, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He is the physical representation of the Father who is spiritual. And in uh, John chapter 4 and verse 24, it tells us God is spirit. Luke chapter 23 and verse 39 tells us spirit has no flesh and blood. But Jesus became flesh, right? So it says in verse 55 that uh, the, the Holy Spirit, uh, being full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazes into heaven, he sees the glory of the Father, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So what does this phrase right hand mean? And people take this literal and think that God the Father is standing here, and Jesus is literally physically standing next to the physical presence of the right hand of the Father. And that's not what this passage is saying. The right hand is a position of favor. Have you ever heard the phrase, he's my right-hand man in our culture? Right? What, what does it mean? Or if, if well, he, this person moves away or something happens, it's like losing my right arm, right? So it's saying to us the significance of, of that person in your life. And so when Stephen looks into heaven, he's wondering, Jesus, where are you? Jesus, do you care? Jesus, do you even have the ability to help me in this circumstance? When he gazes into heaven, what he sees by his sight is the approval of Jesus. Now having ascended into heaven, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. It's saying that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. Jesus' sacrifice is accepted. Jesus is ruling and reigning over his kingdom. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, which is the place of position of approval. It's not acknowledging any physical presence of the Father. What it's doing for us in this passage is giving you comfort here in the now of what Jesus is doing as we are living out our lives in this world. Yes, we think about heaven in the future and seeing God face to face, but what this passage is saying is that God's presence is with his people wherever you go. 
This is why people like Stephen at the face of death have nothing to fear because God is in control. Jesus is the problem to your problem. Nothing will ever be in vain. All of creation groans, but God in his authority has the ability to work all things together for good to those who love God who are called according to his purpose. Matthew 16 then is an important declaration for all of us. I'm going to start in verse 19, but we're going to look at the context around it in just a moment. Chapter 16, verse 19, um, Jesus tells his disciples this, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be, have been loosed in heaven. And Jesus given us the keys to his kingdom. That's like the Porsche to dad's garage. Isn't it? <laughs> what does that mean? Jesus is giving us the keys to his kingdom. Uh, Again, this is a passage of Scripture where people just (laughs) make things up right here. Um, This is where we really can get lost in the clouds of what it means to be a part of God's kingdom. But what specifically does Jesus mean in this passage of Scripture? I will give you the keys of the uh, uh, kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth, be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth, be loose in heaven. This is especially important for us this morning because in the context of this, this is in relationship to the church. I mean, if you think about what what just happened in this passage of Scripture in verse 15, Jesus said to, to them, talking about his apostles or his disciples, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, and the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And look, the gates of Hades will not overpower. Keep in mind, um, typically when you put a gate up, the reason you put a gate up is because you want to keep people out. And what you often do with that gate You lock it, right? And so he says, I say to you, you are Peter upon this rock. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower. The idea of keys represents power authority, right? If you have, you see some maybe celebration in a city and someone gives someone the keys to the city. It's not a real key. It doesn't even unlock anything, but it's the keys to the city. It's a symbol of what they represent to to the people there. And and, and it's a symbol of power, authority. When Jesus is handing over the keys, it's it's this symbol of power and authority being recognized. And so then, in light of that, saying, upon this rock, I will build my church, recognize what, the, what this rock is in this passage of Scripture. When, when, when Jesus is saying, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, that the rock in which he's building on is the profession which Peter just made in light of who Jesus is. Verse 15, who do you say that I am? You are Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon. And I say to you, you are Peter, which is a small rock, but upon the greater rock, which is Christ, the cornerstone, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. We looked at this last week, but we talked about in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter refers to all of us as living stones being built up in the temple of God and Jesus himself, who is the cornerstone. 
I think Peter is referencing that in his epistle to what Jesus has declared to him in Matthew 16. That we are being built up in Christ who is the chief cornerstone, our foundation laid upon him. We ourselves are the temple of God in community because of what Jesus has done. Our foundation rests in Jesus, his authority. He is our king. And because of the authority of Christ, because of our position in him, it gives us this promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Meaning that gate that's built as a fortress to lock and to keep us from breaking it down, we now possess the key to overpower the spiritual forces. What are the keys? The key to the kingdom is very simple. It's the gospel. And the gospel is what sets people free. Romans 5 is the kingdom of darkness. Colossians 1 verse 12 to 15 told us we've been rescued from the kingdom of darkness into the glorious kingdom of his light. Right? Or it's the domain of darkness, the rule of darkness into the kingdom of light. When we talk about the gates of hell, it is a fortress. And the church being given the authority of the keys gets to bust down those gates and busting down those gates, the thing that we see set free are captives. Those rescued from the kingdom of darkness or the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. When we talk about the keys of the kingdom, it's not, it's not religious things we make up. It's very simply found the profession that Peter gave on who Jesus is. I am a little rock because of the great rock. We are being built up into living stones in Christ. And I think about heaven as this future place in which I will see God, but his kingdom is even ruling and reigning right now as Jesus is on his throne. By the way, when you see Jesus on his throne within eternity, when you read the New Testament, you see Jesus really portrayed in two ways. Either he's sitting on the throne or he's standing on the throne or standing before the throne. And what it's saying to us, if he's sitting on the throne, is that is accomplished work that Jesus has made on our behalf. If he's standing before the throne, it's a work that Jesus is continuing to do on our behalf. When you look at Stephen staring into eternity and staring into the, uh, the, the glory of God, seeing Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father and Jesus standing up to receive him, it's the active work of Christ still pulling his believers, his followers with him into his kingdom of light. And as we think about Jesus still ruling and reigning in his authority, it's saying to us that the work of his kingdom still continues today as we proclaim the gospel which sets captives free. Listen to these two verses. I don't think I put them on the screen, but in these verses, in, in John chapter 3 and verse 3, I've already read this to you. This is what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus later contrasts this to the Pharisees in Matthew 23 and verse 13. Listen to what he says to the Pharisees, who are, who are the religious leaders that everyone would have idolized at the time. But he said this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves, nor allow those who would enter to go in. 
What Jesus is acknowledging to the Pharisees is their denial of the gospel. That is the key of the kingdom. And you think of it this way. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by what? Me. Jesus is the key. Jesus in his position. Emmanuel ruling above us has become in the likeness of man. Dying on the cross by his authority, triumphing over sin, death, and and, and the grave. To give us the keys to the kingdom. What does this mean for us today? It puts things into perspective. It gives us a hope that transcends all pain and suffering in this world. Knowing that none of it is to be in vain before a God who loves us so dearly. Romans fourteen seventeen says this, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, not physical, but listen, but righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. It's saying the kingdom of God is at work within us spiritually, setting captives free. Ultimately, it will be combinated for us physically in the consummation of what Christ would bring. But listen, here's, here's the biggest problem. I think I find in Scripture relates to us in an action of the kingdom today. In First John chapter four and verse four, it says this as it relates to our relationship in Jesus. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. Yes, Satan may be referred to as God of this world. The prince of the power of the air. But his days are numbered. And Jesus has declared his authority. And that kingdom is at work within you. And God has given you something more precious than the keys to your father's Ferrari in the garage. He's given you the keys to set captives free by the power of his gospel. And the beauty of it all in the midst of this world as we live for this kingdom, we see a king who in these moments is ruling and reigning over his church, cheering us on to stand for him with a hope that transcends beyond this world so that no matter what happens, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And you are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in this world. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.